Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 16th, 2020. Uh, sorry, October the 17th. My numbers are bad. Uh, 2022. Um, yesterday, I had an interesting conversation with the Irish historian Sean Connolly on how, at least according to him, Irish immigration made the world, made the, the modern world, or made the world modern. He has a new book out on every tide, the making and remaking of the Irish world. Talking to uh, to Connolly made immigration and travel in the 19th and even 20th century seem quaint immigrants traveling on ships from Europe to America and to the so-called New World. Things have changed dramatically. Um, we did a show a few months ago with another Irish writer, Sally Hayden, on the 21st century slave trade in the immigration world. She has a new book out, My Fourth Time We Drown, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Trail. The migration world has become apocalyptic, according to Hayden, and got mixed up with all sorts of other uh, apocalyptic issues associated with immigration. We've done lots of shows, actually, on a similar theme. One with the African migrant Usman Umar on his surviving a journey across the Sahara. He wrote about it in his memoir, North to Paradise. And it's not just Africa, of course, um, which is the feature here. We're We've spoken about the southern border of the United States. We did a show with Levi Vonk on border hacker, uh, on the human migration, the anarchy, the apocalyptic nature of the so-called American southern border. And even one with a very distinguished poet, Javier Zamora from El Salvador, about his new book, Solito, in which he made this trek, this walk from El Salvador to the United States alone as an 11-year-old. It's all unfortunately or tragically apocalyptic. My guest today, Anna Batkin, um, has written about this extensively. She had a piece in LitHub on failed migrations amid uh, climate crisis and colonial greed. She's become uh, one of the scribes describing this world. Um, her, her feature in LitHub a few months ago asked, what does living in an unfolding apocalyptic reality look like and now we know i think in part uh because badkin has um a new book it's called bright unbearable reality it's a series of essays it's just out and i'm honored that uh anna badkin is joining us now from her home in philadelphia anna welcome thanks very much for having me hello so uh, tell me about this this new book, um, Bright Unbearable Reality. It's a series of essays, but they're not disconnected, aren't they? Are they? They're they're all connected into uh, the the issues that I talked about earlier of migration and apocalypse. Well, I'm not sure about apocalypse. Um, they they are all connected the way we are all connected, and what connects us in this 21st century is probably our disconnectedness um, and the degree to which we're dispersed. One in seven people today live outside of the place where they were born. And some of us, uh, some of the people who were 
who have migrated um, have migrated not on their uh, of their own will, but uh, not voluntarily, uh, but were forced to leave their home because of climate change and uh, violence, <clears throat> and um, or climate change or violence. Um, and uh, the questions that uh, I ask in the book, throughout the book, are what to hold on to uh, and how to hold on at this time of um, great dispersal uh, and this great dislocation, not just um, physical dislocation, but also moral dislocation or ethical dislocation, because even though one in seven people in the world um, has left uh, their place of birth, the sedentary world often treats the migrant uh, as less than, um, and um, even the word migrant, um, you know, is a word that was used until fairly recently to refer to animals changing place. So um, how do we, um, basically I'm asking my readers and asking myself to uh, think about a new vocabulary, a vocabulary of compassion and a vocabulary of um, love and care uh, for this world that we are co-creating. How different is this world from the one that existed in the 19th century, the world that uh, Sean Connolly uh, describes in On Every Tide. Uh, I'm, what, what were the numbers, would you guess, in the 19th century? Talk about one in seven now people being on the move. I'm assuming it was significantly higher. I'm not going to guess numbers. I don't know the number for the 19th century. I do know that uh, one in seven humans on the move on the planet is an unprecedented number. Um, there has not been... A migration of this degree, probably since humans began to disperse uh, out of Africa, um, because people are moving everywhere, uh, and we're not just talking about trans transnational migration. We're talking about migration from urban air from rural areas to urban areas. We're talking about migration from. Um, uh, inland to areas in parts of the world where um, drought is setting in. So there are all kinds of different kinds of migration um, that in include are included in that number um, of one billion people. So, um, but you know, you would have to have both of us talk um, about uh, to compare uh, the mm. migration. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is, let's say we've got a billion people moving out of 7 billion on Earth. There's certainly many more billions today than there were 100 years ago. But that still leaves 6 billion people who aren't traveling. And it seems as if the politics of today is very much we had David Goodhart, a British political writer on the show, several times. He has a, a theory that the politics of the day are divided between the the everywheres, the people who travel and the people who don't. In your experience, you've done a lot of traveling yourself, particularly um, in Africa. Do you think that the great political division these days is between uh, 
migrants or at least people willing to travel leave home and those that aren't for one reason or another? I think the political division today is very similar to the great political division of the 19th century. There are um, There is, is a, a wealthy white minority in the world um, that can afford to travel in a very different fashion than the uh, mostly black and brown minority, uh, sorry, mostly black and brown majority in the, in the world uh, who uh, are often forced to leave home. Um, in, and the reasons for which um, people migrate from or within um, what some call the global south um, is very much dictated by that wealthy white minority that can pick and choose where they live, uh, right? There is no... It, there is no um, no surprise that that when um, Americans or Europeans decide to move to Senegal uh, and get based uh, in in Dakar, uh, they're called expats. But when um, Africans from Senegal uh, or Kenya or Somalia decide to move and base themselves out of London, they're called immigrants. So even in the language, even linguistically, uh, we're setting these very clear boundaries between what the perceived haves and the perceived have-nots and also the real haves and the real have-nots. But really, um, as in the centuries, last few centuries, um, colonialism and greed and avarice of of the wealthy few is what determines uh, human movement. Anna, you're um, a migrant from Russia. You were born there. You live in, in Philadelphia now in the United States. You write for the New York Review of Books and Grant and a number of other leading progressive publications. Do you consider yourself a part of that dominant new elite? And you seem to be writing for them. I mean, the kind of people who read the New York Review of Books and the Grant uh, um, tend to be themselves mobile. So the, the mobile class is divided, isn't it, between conservatives and liberals? Um, yeah, I definitely am a white woman living in the United States and using an American passport and traveling on it. So I definitely am a very, very privileged um, member of the elite, yeah. In your book, um, uh, Bright, Unbearable Reality, do you think of yourself as a storyteller? The, the reason I ask is we've done a number of shows on how to tell stories about migration and particularly the environment. Um, did one with Martin Puchner, uh, also with Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth. Demuth has an interesting new book out, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, which tells the story of geography and culture and immigration and colonialism in a different kind of way. You seem in, in some ways in your work to be quite experimental. Are you telling a different kind of story? The story you're telling on one level is familiar, but on another level, it's quite different, isn't it? Uh, different in which way? Well, different in the sense that you are, I wouldn't say you're a, um, 
an experimental or avant-garde storyteller, but you're you're writing essays which connect together to make sense of what you call our bright, unbearable reality. I mean, what's or, or let me rephrase the question. I mean, in terms of this book, your new book, um, bright, unbearable reality. What's the goal here? Is it in telling a different kind of story, a similar story in a different kind of way? No, I, I don't think that that's the goal. I think the goal is um, to ask questions and to think out loud and to encourage readers to think alongside. Um, I, think, I think the goal is not storytelling per se, but um, uh, trying to encourage an invention. Well, first of all, trying to encourage introspection. Um, into who we are as humans and who we are as a human community. Um, to think about how we got here, uh, to f focus on our compassion and our capacity for compassion, to focus on our capacity for violence, uh, to stare it in, you know, in the face. Um, so, I don't think I'm comfortable comparing myself to other writers, uh, very fine writers, and uh, I know some of them personally. Um, I uh, am not sure I'm a different kind of storyteller. I, I, I do know that um, I am, I, this is not a journalistic book. This is not an investigation. This is not, a, not really reportage. Um, but more kind of a philosophical inquiry into our human state. When you say it's a, a philosophical in inquiry, what kind of philosophical statement are you trying to make? I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm trying to describe... Um, okay, well, no, let me rephrase. Yeah, I apologize. Let me rephrase the question. What, what what is the the philosophy at the heart of of, of this book? Um, the questions that I ask in the book are broad questions of how, how did we get here? Um, what can we do differently? Why do we repeat um, violence? How do we overcome violence, what makes us want to live, um, what is the purpose of art, um, what is the purpose of poetry, so broad uh, philosophical questions, um, that, that, because I think that, um, I think that in the current state of the planet, both human and non-human planet, we need to rely on more than one kind of narrative and more than one kind of approach. Um, clearly, we have room for more than one kind of approach. Um, so what I'm trying to do in a book is I'm trying to imagine other approaches to hope, other approaches to grief, um, 
And I think it's less, I mean, obviously I'm doing this publicly as a, as a book writer, uh, and the book is published, uh, or tomorrow it will be published. Um, Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. But I also am doing it because I have these questions. Uh, so I'm raising these questions for me as well, for myself as well. Um, and uh, I'm trying to invite my readers to think alongside um, and maybe maybe ask follow-up questions, maybe invent another um, set of questions that need to be asked. Uh, if we are trying to make it out of here alive, um, we need some other kind of uh, intervention. The title of, of the book uh, is uh, a line from Alice Oswald's um, introduction to her book Memorial, which is a, a kind of a retelling of the Iliad. And uh, in the introduction, uh, Oswald explains or translates the word energia, the Greek word energia, as bright, unbearable reality, which she says is a state when gods come to earth, not in disguise, but as themselves. So in my opinion, um, the world is in a state so dire that needs that bright, unbearable presence. Uh, we need to invite that bright, unbearable presence. We need to stare it in the face if, if we're trying, if we want to survive as a compassionate um, species. Yeah, you, you use a lot of Greek analogies, metaphors, history in the book. Um, and of course, looking at a bright, unbearable reality might blind us, which in biblical terms might not be such a bad thing. Um, you also write extensively about violence in the book and in your other work. Um, you wrote an interesting piece, a wonderful piece, I thought, on LitHub recently on um, Barry Lopez's uh, Arctic Dreams in which you talk about uh, his gory recreation of an instance of white slaughter by 19th century Europeans, a book about different kinds of violence. I'm curious, you've done a lot of work in Africa as a writer and as a traveler. I mean, the, the history of Africa, colonial Africa is of course shaped by this terrible colonial violence. One thinks of John Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness is the violence today, Anna, is it different from the violence that somebody like Conrad described? Is it worse, better, more, uh, is, it, is it brighter, more shocking in a different kind of way? Um, so uh, before I became a writer of books, I was a war correspondent for um, about 15 years. And yes. most of my Writing, uh, as a war correspondent, I did in Central Asia and uh, the Middle East, a little bit in Africa, in East Africa, but uh, for the most part, it was um, the American wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Russian war in Chechnya, and other um, places of, of conflict, um, the conflict, the war uh, of Israel against Palestine. Um, I think violence is fundamental 
fundamentally effective. And so violence probably hasn't changed very much um, since man stumbled upon it. Um, Cormac McCarthy, who, by the way, has another book coming out, um, two books coming out this year, wrote in his book, Blood Meridian, uh, that I think, I think the quote was, before man was, war was waiting for him, the ultimate art expecting its ultimate practitioner. Maybe I'm using the nouns incorrectly, uh, verse incorrectly, but, but basically the gist is war has always come with humans. Um, what I realized um, a, a few weeks ago, I was talking to someone and I realized that I, I, covered, I started covering conflict in 1999. Correction, 1998. Mm. And not a single war that I have covered has ended. So the conflict in the Caucasus, in the in North Caucasus, continues in a different under a different name. The war in Afghanistan continues. The war in Iraq continues. So I know that a generation before me, um, just when I was still in college and high school, the college there was the war in the Balkans, and it ended. And in my understanding of, of the current warscape, that may have been the last one. So that is pretty unusual. You know, I grew up in the Soviet Union, uh, on the, uh, the the mythology of uh, World War Two, the Soviet victories in World War Two were um, was enormous. It took up enormous space in in our uh, classrooms and uh, our streets and our conversations. And for the Soviet Union, the engagement lasted four years, and that seemed like forever. The U.S. entered Afghanistan in 2001. That war is of drinking age. The U.S. entered Iraq in 2003. That war is in its 19th year. Even if American troops have pulled out, the violence continues. So um, I know much less about conflicts in Africa because I haven't actually covered a lot of them. But I do know that the conflict that Mali continues to experience began 10 years ago, um, also very much as a result of American intervention in North Africa. Um, in the sense that wars today are either perpetrated by or precipitated by the actions of colonial powers or superpowers that that is true that is true today um the degree of um 
the degree of violence is hard to gauge. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't know. Um, if, if, you know, if you, if you read reports from Ukraine, um, you see the kind of visceral um, acts of almost acts of hatred mm. uh, by the Russian soldiers against Ukrainian civilians. Um, you saw the same or similar acts by the Russian soldiers in Chechnya. Yeah, and you were in Afghanistan as well, weren't you? Yes, I was in Afghanistan. Not when the Russians were there. I was right, too young. obviously, yeah. Um, so, war, so, so what you're saying, Anna, is there's always been war. You write about the Aeneid, and then obviously the Greek civilization was built around the act and glorification in some ways of war. But the wars today are, are different. They don't end. And they're brutal and vengeful. Is that what you're saying? I think wars have always been brutal and vengeful. Um, I, I just I think the wars today are last longer than they did a hundred years ago. But um, but again, I'm not an historian. Uh, probably right. historians listening to us might be rolling their eyes. Um, well, it's always good to get historians to roll their eyes or roll something. Um, and I. So here's a world that you're writing about, this bright, unbearable reality of constant movement, of massive immigration and of um, suffering in that sense, a, a world of endless wars. What about the environmental piece of this? Is this built into this bright, unbearable reality too? Well, the environmental piece is at the root of it. Uh, war is always around resources. And resources are always finite. And, and the way um, the way the global industrial itself, uh, resources are becoming more and more finite. Um, climate change is the cause of all human migration today. Um, and it is the cause of most conflicts, one way or another. Um, because the conflicts are around water, around minerals, around um, around resources, uh, and resources uh, are being depleted, um, and they're being depleted as a result of the Anthropocene and and human greed and uh, this kind of insatiable. Um, entitlement of the global north so how do we look at this or how do you look at this as as a writer it seems as if you have an interest in looking down you you had an interesting piece in your review about uh bright unbearable reality the title of your new book migration is seen from above you write about a um, a Flemish Renaissance, 15th century Renaissance painter, Joachim Patiner, the first person to imagine uh, art as, as looking down. Is there a, a way of looking in your book, Bright Unbearable Reality, of looking down? You also write about looking at the world from flights, um, from, from aircraft, which uh, we all do as 
global travelers of one kind or another. Does one have to look down on this? You're also on the ground itself. So I guess in a way you're looking up. I think it's always good to look from different vantage points. Um, I, I, I do look down uh, uh, through uh, the eyes of Flemish painter and also killer drones, uh, but kind of tongue in cheek. I, I maybe, uh, maybe what I'm looking at is the person or is our desire to look down. Because mm. when we look down, we're looking at a certain remove. Um, why? Why is this voyeuristic? Why do we want to see all of it, and at the same time remain um, safely above it all? And also, above it all has um, an interesting um, positionality, right? Um, I examine the way we look in the book. And I also examine the views. Um, I look at this um, entitled uh, sense that we should be able to see. Um, I look at the... Uh, so Sorry, j let me jump in here. I, I, I hope I'm not uh, in keep continually interrupting. The the entitlement to see, perhaps you might explain what you mean by that. There is a, um, a, a desire to be in the know all the time and to witness all the time, but to witness with a, at a very low emotional cost. So when we're looking at a, an image of Russian um, draft age, Russian men trying to escape the draft um, on the border with Georgia, we're looking at, at, at that image of, you know, 10 miles of cars sneaking in, in the mountains as they approach the border checkpoint. We're satisfied that we have seen the scope of it. We have witnessed the disaster of it. And at the same time, we can then move on to the next thing because this, um, this distant observation leaves us emotionally, more or less emotionally unharmed. So it's a very voyeuristic Act. Right, it's a voyeurism, a tourism, an emotional tourism of one kind or another. But emotional tourism. How, how do we get around that? I mean, someone's going to pick up your book, which is a, a book about this this world. I mean, it's better for them to read it than not read it, isn't it? I hope they read it. I don't know if it's better. <laughs> I hope you, they read it. Um, I don't know. Should they suffer? I mean, should there be, in terms of this emotional voyeurism or tourism? Can one suffer with a book, do you think? Or does one have to be on the ground to actually see this suffering? I think suffering with the book is the best kind of suffering. If all, if all human suffering <laughs> were suffering with books, we would be in a, very, a much better world. <clears throat> um, I think that in order to 
I think that in order to limit suffering, we need to imagine it. Not imagine it uh, in a voyeuristic sense, but imagine it in, in, in some kind of different compassionate way. And that I think is what I'm trying to invite my readers to do. I think what I'm trying to do, what I hope the book does is I hope that it um, invites a reimagining of, 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 of how we are. Um, Toni Morrison um, had a film a documentary film called A Stranger's Home. And in it, she said, we're dreaming it wrong. So this book is a kind of an invitation to dream differently about the world that can be and about yeah, the world that Very compelling, very beautifully put, to dream differently. Uh, you use the word suffering and compassion. Those are words that often are used with conventional religion. Is there a, a religious quality in any way to this book or to your thinking here when it comes to words like suffering and compassion? I don't think so. At least that's not the meaning that I uh, imbue in words. I mean literally suffering and literally compassion. Um, This is not religious literature. Oh, I, I, it should not be. It should not be read. No, I understand. I mean, obviously, Christian literature is is a lot of the Christian literature seems to be built around suffering and compassion in a different way. So let's end on this idea or this ideal, Anna, of dreaming differently. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we do that? What, what, what would you like for people? What would you like? If, if, if many people read this book, how can we learn to dream differently? How are you teaching us to dream differently? Oh, God. Um, um, I am not sure that uh, I'm arrogant enough <laughs> to say I'm teaching. Well, you don't have to be arrogant to, um, but, to encourage it. You're not telling people how to dream, but you're suggesting it, shall we say. Um, Joseph Brodsky, the poet who was born in yeah. the same city I was born, said of uh, Czeslav Nikolaevich. St. Petersburg, right? Correct, St. Petersburg, Russia. Or we were actually both born in Leningrad, USSR. Yeah. Of Czeslav Milos, uh, the Polish poet and also a Nobel Prize uh, laureate, uh, just like Brodsky, he said... Um, that a good poet, good poetry doesn't tell you how to live. It tells you for the sake of what to live. I think the book that I wrote encourages readers to contemplate for the sake of what to live. Well, it's, a, it's an important book. Yours is a, is a very, I think, important voice. More and more people are reading and listening to. Congratulations, Anna, on the new book. What else are you reading these days? Um, perhaps you're not arrogant enough to 
promote your own book, but maybe promote some other people's books. Absolutely. Uh, two books that very recently came out that I'm absolutely in love with and will promote uh, at any turn. Um, one is by uh, Jamil Jankuchai, uh, born in a refugee camp in Shawar and uh, Afghan, to Afghan parents, lives in California. Um, young uh, fiction writer uh, published his second book uh, called The Hauntings of Haji Hotak. It's astonishing. Uh, it's a collection of not so very interconnected, but more or less interconnected uh, short stories. Um, the language of the book is stunning to me. It, 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 the, the intimacy of the language um, about and the, the, the book is about uh, the Afghan diaspora, both in Afghanistan and in the United States and in between. Um, the, the intimacy of the language uh, completely knocked me, uh, my feet. It, I don't know anybody else who writes like this. Um, so please run and grab a copy. He's also a finalist. Is, for he, is he a friend of yours? I've never met him. Oh, okay. I'll have to get him on the show. He is in, in Europe time zone. Um, yeah. And then, and then uh, Eduardo Alfon's new book called Cancion. And Eduardo is a friend of mine. Uh, he's a Guatemalan writer um, who lives currently in Europe. And uh, all of his books are an inquiry into memory and... and uh, emotional and physical displacement uh a lot of it is around the holocaust or a, a memory of the holocaust and also memories of genocides in central america um his language is gorgeous this one is in translation by lisa dillman and daniel hahn uh who are his longtime translators uh and i know that uh, uh eduardo also usually participates in the translating process. So uh, gorgeous, gorgeous, very, very moving book. He operates on a, he's a, he's a writer who operates on a level uh, um, of unspoken, un, underspokenness or unspokenness. There's so much silence in his work um, that um, it, I, I, every time I read a book, I want to read it, take, pick it up and read it from the beginning. The only writer who makes me want to do that is uh, Zebald. So, you know, no, I was going to mention him. I didn't want to, again, pigeonhole you, but uh, I see some of him in, in your work too. Ah, interesting. Okay. 